to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast, we cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is Rula Kalaf, the editor of the Financial Times. In January 2020, Kalaf became the first female editor in the FT's 134-year history. Rula's path to the top of the FT was not via the City of London, but through her work as a foreign correspondent. Born in Lebanon, she served as the FT's foreign editor, reporting from Iraq, Iran and Syria and covering the Arab Spring. She now manages 600 journalists across the globe as editor of one of the world's most respected and recognisable publications. Welcome to the podcast, Rula. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so I feel like I kind of have to start in January 2020. So uh, there you are, you get a big job, you must have turned up and had, as we all do, you know, big plans and big visions for all that you were going to do. And then, uh, and then you find yourself, presumably like the rest of us, running a global organisation via Zoom. Um, how was it? Well, yes, it was uh, six weeks um, before the, the world fell, I, I took over and um, we had to, uh, everything changed in, you know, in, in a matter of, of days. And as you say, uh, I obviously came in with big plans um, and a lot of ambition um, and it was obviously frustrating that I had to deal with something else. But there, there was also an, up, an upside, and that is that I had to focus all my time, all my attention uh, on running the newspaper. So I, I, I didn't have anything else that yeah. I had to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that helped us both in our coverage and in making us um, – more sustainable and more secure uh, as a business, and and so did your did your actual um, did your priorities uh, for the paper change as a consequence? I mean, obviously in the short obviously in the short term, you were talking a lot about COVID, I guess. But in terms of your medium term ambitions, long term ambitions, um, yes and and no. So um, what I try to do is delay a little bit some of my longer term ambitions. I'll give you an example that I came in and I wanted us to do uh, a lot more on um, on climate change because I, I thought that that is of, of, cons- of great concern to uh, to business leaders, even those who didn't realize it um, at, at the time. And so I, I moved a more slowly on on the projects and focused a lot more on coverage and how we cover um, the pandemic. And w- one of the the things that surprised me is that I didn't think, and I think none of us thought that you know we were a, a, a huge authority in science and health. Mm. Um, and yet, what I discovered is that we have a lot. We had a lot of great assets, and so we put a team together. Um, and through our data journalism as well, uh, really leveraged our data journalism. And we were able uh, to establish ourselves as, as an authority. The other thing I did was um, that I felt that um, reliable, authoritative uh, information was, was um, 
uh, very badly needed at oh. that at that time. And so I made some of our coverage free, which was something that was new. I mean, we did in the past make some yeah. uh, coverage, uh, very, very rarely free. But I decided um, and I and I got the uh, board approval to make some of the uh, some of our best and more, most authoritative coverage of the pandemic, including data journalism, are free to read. And what is what was really interesting to me is that our subscribers actually really, really appreciated this. I yeah. got a lot of emails saying, um, I am glad that you're doing this and I am willing to pay for others to be able to access this information uh, freely. Well, that, that's fascinating because it actually takes me to, to, to one of my later questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw it in now. So, so um, uh, this is a this is a. I have to say this is very much a, a personal opinion that I'd like your uh, your view on. Um, but I feel that recently, let's say, given the the enormity of the challenges that that the world faces, so we we have we've touched on two. We've got COVID. We've got the climate change. We've now got Ukraine. Um, I feel sort of empirically that that serious news organisations have started to take, let's say, a more muscular position on um, the on essentially truth and lies on, on you know on, on addressing things like you know false equivalences, um, whether that be. Um, anti-vaxxing uh, or whether it be Kremlin propaganda or, or what have you. Do, do you think that's, first of all, do you, do you think that observation is fair? And and what, what do you think of it? I think that, um, as, as you know, uh, trust in media has been declining. And what happened during the pandemic, largely because quality um, news organisations and authoritative news organizations um, did did very well and covered and I think covered the pandemic uh, very well. I think that that trust has uh, started at least to be restored. There is there is research that shows that trust levels have um, um, have increased, and I think that that encourages everyone uh, to keep to keep going. Um, we are obviously a business. Uh, we have, uh, and we know that quality journalism is a very expensive uh, to produce. But I think that I feel, and I think everyone at the FT feels, that we also have a public service uh, role to play. And um, therefore, uh, in, in a world of uh, fake news and uh, growing propaganda and the ability to propagate this, this propaganda so easily through social media, it, it is our job to make sure that the truth is, um, is told and that the truth is spread mm. and that more people have access to it. So I definitely want to come back to, to issues around uh, transparency. But, but, but before that, I want to take you back to your childhood. I mean, it's fascinating listening to you talk so passionately about the, the FT being a global organisation and you grew up in Beirut. Do you, th do you think that that gives you a, well, it must give you a, um, a different perspective to people that preceded you and I guess your peers in other um, Western-based news organisations? I don't know that it gives me a different perspective because I think that the FT has always been a, a global mm. organisation and certainly my, my predecessors um, had worked um, in, in different parts of, of the world. Um, I think that, you know, I, I am a very international person. I, you know, I grew up in Beirut. I studied uh, in, in the US and spent 10 years in 
in the US and then and then moves uh, to to London. So obviously my outlook is is very uh, international. Um, but we we also have uh, a, a large part of our readership in in the UK, and so we have to remain anchored mm. in in the UK. Mm. And I mean, you grew up during the Civil War in Beirut, is that right? Um, I, I mean, can you tell us a bit about what that was like? Um, <laughs> it was. Um, Strange, uh, <laughs> un- unusual. But did did I it think. seem? If you're growing up, did it seem? I mean, did it? It didn't seem unusual to me. Yeah, yeah. No, it didn't seem unusual to me. And I think that whatever situation you're in, you adapt. Uh, yeah. The civil war in Lebanon was not one continuous uh, conflict. Yeah. So there were periods of very violent conflict. And mm-hmm. then uh, you would think that um, uh, there's a ceasefire for several months. So, in fact, uh, we I moved for one year to my family moved to Egypt for one year. And then uh, later on, we moved to to Greece, uh, to Athens uh, uh, for for some time. And at one point, we also moved to to uh, London, and so wow. it was. It, it was constant movements and constant change, uh, but it, you do adapt. And I think children uh, also create their own world. Their mm. world becomes their their family. And I think that as long as you, you feel protected by your family, then then you feel the trauma of war a little bit less. Uh, but we certainly moved around. A lot, and there was, you know, we had a. There was this black bag that uh, my parents always had that had our passports, um, money, and you know, it it was the bag that you know we all knew where it was because we knew that there would be times when we'd just have to grab it and and move on. So where feels like where is home for you? Now, where, when you think of home, where do you think? Home, home is right here, right now, <laughs> where, where I am. <laughs> home, home, is, uh, home is a British Airways lounge or something. <laughs> it's, it's actually, my, my home is in London. This is where my, uh, my children grew up. Uh, but I, I also still think of, of Lebanon as uh, as home, and yeah. I my father is there, and I go and and visit him. But that's not where I live uh, yeah. anymore, and I haven't lived there since since I went to to college. And you know, I made a deliberate decision that I wanted to live in in the UK and to be a British citizen. Um, and um, so that is my home. This is a slight sort of um, in parenthesis question, but you're a financial journalist. We've talked about Beirut. I, I have to ask you about one of Beirut's most famous inhabitants at the moment, Carlos Ghosn. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when, when I was fortunate enough to be at Harvard, so that was about 15 years ago now, we did a whole case study about, you know, Carlos Ghosn, this uh, incredible, it is a podcast about leadership, you know, an incredible global leader. Um, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to make you uh, put you too much on the spot. But but what what do you make of that story? I mean, uh, it's an astonishing. I can't think of a parallel to to what's happened to him. Yeah, it's it's a spectacular rise and a spectacular fall of one of the world's leading uh, businessmen. Um, but I think it's also a story of hubris um, and uh, and to a certain extent possibly uh, greed. Um, I think that sometimes you can get carried away with the power that you that you accumulate. 
Um, and I think that is a typical example of that. Yeah. For, for, for those listening to the podcast, if you don't know who Carlos Ghosn um, was, he was the uh, CEO of Nissan Renault, essentially, and was prosecuted in Japan and had a very spectacular escape. Um, and, and if people do want to know more, there's a, there's, I don't work for the BBC, but there's an amazing storyville amazing storyable documentary about him it really is it's like a or 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 listeners can go back and read what we wrote in the of course of course sorry of course because we had great coverage of Of the read it in the financial times um so um uh, you, your first job as a reporter, I believe, uh, was for Forbes in the early 90s, where you uh, reported, I guess, on the, the, the 1990s, late 90s, pre-crash uh, excesses of Wall Street. And uh, from one, uh, let's say, anti-hero leader to another, Carlos going to Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, who I believe you met. Um, uh, what, what was he like? Well, let me first say that the wolf, for those who did see the, the film, it, it was nothing like the film, really. Uh, he was not on Wall Street to begin with. Um, he had a shop in, in Long Island and it was a, a penny stock um, shop. So I, I came across him uh, through... Um, uh, uh, short, some you know short sellers and people mm. in the in in the business who were looking at dodgy uh, at dodgy outfits um, and um, and I started looking into him and I knew that there was um, uh, that there was something not quite right in in his in his business and then when I contacted him he was he was so happy to be contacted oh. by Forbes because that that seemed to him to be like you know he derived. And so uh, he was very happy to be to be interviewed. And it was, of course, at the end of my my research that I got in touch with him. And I remember he came into the office and um, was full of confidence um, and was therefore very shocked when when the story uh, came out. And the story was never called The Wolf of of Wall Street. Um, then when when he went to jail eventually he wrote a he wrote a book yeah. um, and um, and he described me in the book as an insolent uh, reporter who um, who uh, but he does say I think that I was clever too which was okay. uh, which was good, good of him okay. um, uh, and I think I think this is it's the book that then you know yes. was turned into a uh, a, yeah. ho- a Hollywood film yeah. which I thought the film was dreadful by the way. <laughs> Yeah, my kids love it. But there you go. That probably says it all. <laughs> um, so, so sort of from the from the sublime to the ridiculous. So you left Forbes, and then you uh, you were reporting on the civil war in Algeria. You worked in Iraq, Iran, covered the Arab Spring. I mean, incredibly tumultuous um, times. Is that because you've been you you've been drawn towards them, or is that? how it's just worked out? I don't think so. It was definitely a dream of mine to uh, cover uh, the the Middle East Mm. um, and to be a a foreign correspondent. Uh, But I think what happened was that because it was a case of continuous uh, crisis, my editors would always say, well, do this, you know, stay, do this now. And, you know, if you ask me, you know, one thing that I do regret is that I think I spent far too much time covering one region, but the region kept changing. And the region is actually quite versatile and unbelievably volatile. And so I went from one crisis to to another and I learned how to cover crises. Like, what what do you do when you're covering a big crisis? Um, And and, and I think that definitely helps me today in coverage of of Ukraine, for example. Um, I think 
you also develop a certain you know understanding of what 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 it's like for people mm. and what it's like for what it's like for reporters on the ground but what mm. it's also like uh, for the people who are uh, who they are they are covering yeah. uh, you know living through very difficult circumstances living through through trauma um, and, and I think you know probably that helps I'd love to talk to you or hear you talk a, a, a little about your leadership style how would you describe it I like well, I like to describe it. It's, this, this is a question, obviously, better answered by, um, uh, by others at the FT. But I, I like to think that I'm fair. Um, I'm sure that I'm relentless. Um, I like to think that I'm approachable um, and that, you know, people know that they can come in and, and talk to me. Um, I've, I've definitely tried to, uh, spread the message that, um, uh, I like to listen, um, mm. and that I'm willing to talk about everything. Um, and that, you know, people can just email me or, uh, you know, knock on my door and, uh, and come in. And, and so it's been a tumultuous two years. Has that taught you something about yourself as a leader, given the, you know, the extraordinary nature of events. I think it taught me a lot about uh, management. Mm. Um, I think that the the pandemic required a completely different style of of management, and that's certainly something that I hadn't uh, anticipated. And when I speak to um, a lot of leaders in in the business community. Uh, they, they, they have uh, they found also that manage management during the pandemic was different because it wasn't just about the the work. Um, it was also about how people have adjusted to a completely different uh, lifestyle and a much more difficult uh, lifestyle. They had to juggle uh, homeschooling and uh, and work. Um, there was there was a lot of mental pressure, um, people getting sick or their relatives were getting sick. And I think that in my discussions with with CEOs and, and business leaders, I think everyone has found that you needed to pay attention uh, to more than the work that the staff was, is, is producing. Uh, you, you needed to really to be a lot more caring, a lot more sympathetic to what uh, people were going through. Um, and, and I think that, that that is something that will continue long after the pandemic because the pandemic created this new concept of flexibility. Mm. Um, and, and I think that th there is a lot of benefit to flexibility. People have discovered a much better work-life balance. Um, and I think that we we have to try to preserve some of that uh, while at the same time, um, you know, bringing people back to the office and um, recreating or rejuvenating the collaboration, the creativity that comes with people being uh, together. I, I agree entirely with that. I think that there are things that you can't do without having everybody together at least some of the time. But I also think there's a lot of things you can do remotely or in or in, in all sorts of different shapes and ways of doing it. And I, I think 
hybrid working or whatever you want to call it. I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist about that. I think there is a genuine opportunity for a win, a win-win, not, not just enabling people's people to get a better work-life balance, let's say, but I think there are opportunities for organizations to work in different, more collaborative, more imaginative ways. Well, th- this is what we're, this is what we've been trying to do. Uh, we started in March with a new hybrid working system and, you know, with three days a week where I, I wanted everybody to actually be together yeah. in the office rather than teams, you know, deciding yeah. I'll, I'll be in on Monday and somebody else will be in yes. on, on Tuesday so that we can try to get the best of, of both wor- worlds. I mean, that, that, that for, for what it's worth, our businesses are different, obviously, but um, that's what we do. That's what, in London and elsewhere in the world. Um, and it works really well for us. Um, of course, nothing is perfect. There's always challenges. And, and there is, there, I think that the challenge is also that there will always be people who think we should go back completely yeah. to the way we were and people who think you don't have to be yes. there at all. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time trying to explain uh, why I made the decision, why I reached the decision that that I had reached about, you know, the, the three day yeah. altogether, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I had, in fact, talked to a lot of other um, uh, business leaders about this just to see what they had, you know, and, and I'd read a lot of research. As you know, there has been uh, a lot of research. So I, I, I think that it makes it makes sense to me. Um, we'll see when I when we review it this summer what what um, others at the FT think. Um, you, you mentioned earlier around uh, you mentioned the transparency and diversity and your, your predecessor Lionel Barber wrote of the newsroom one day I'll deal with the alpha male problem but not today. Um, and you've uh, you've also previously said there were days at the FT where you were the only woman in the room. It's taken over a hundred years for the FT to have a female editor. Uh, how much resistance have you had to deal with? Uh, and and indeed, have you dealt with the alpha male problem? <laughs> okay, first first of all, I, I think I think Lionel was very very genuine, and he really did want to deal with the uh, with the alpha male uh, problem. And we talked about it a lot when I was uh, when I was deputy editor, and I think that was probably one of the reasons that he he had appointed me as as deputy yeah. editor. I don't like to think of it as an alpha male problem. I like to think of it as, and that is indeed how I think of it, uh, you need uh, a diversity of views because that makes for better journalism. It makes for more creative ideas. It makes for a a much more um, interesting debate. Um, and I think that what I have tried to do is to have enough women in uh, in the room uh, at every level of, of the organization. Um, and what I found is that in some ways it is easier to get it at the top levels of, of the organization mm. uh, because you can promote people. Uh, but where it is more difficult is in the, the middle. So we, we hire at least 50 percent newcomer, you know, the yeah. younger generation who come into the to the FT. Um, at least 50 percent uh, and often more than 50 percent are women. And at the top levels, we're about 45 percent uh, now, and I hope that we'll be fifty percent uh, very soon. Uh, but I think that in the in the middle level, this is where I still have uh, work uh, to do. And and I think that um, I'm often looking for you know women who may have 
um, left journalism for one reason mm. or another and want to come back into um, into journalism. And I'm very keen to hire a woman in in those levels that maybe you know running running a desk or running a, a team. So in in team leadership positions. And um, your your path to the top was, uh, I guess, not through the city. Um, uh, which I suppose traditionally the heart of financial reporting. Do you think that you personally have had to um, fight more for recognition because of a rather unorthodox route? I'm not sure that I had to fight more for recognition because I had been at the FT for, for a long time. Um, and I think that I had the respect of, of, my, uh, of my colleagues. Um, and I, the fact that I had been deputy editor for several years, so I helped to run the, you know, the, the newspaper on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis, um, especially uh, uh, at, at a time when uh, when the editor was was traveling uh, quite a, quite a bit, um, and and I had the confidence of of the editor. So I think everyone saw me doing the job on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously. It, you know, being deputy editor is a very different from being uh, editor because mm. you can always go to the editor for the final uh, decision. And now every final decision rests with me. Uh, but I think everyone had seen me doing the job. So there was nothing terribly unusual in my, my uh, you know, running conference every day. And I would do it for, you know. Uh, sometimes, you know, one or two, two weeks at, at a time. And so I, I think that I had the respect and the confidence of, of the newsroom. Mm. I, I, I like that observation about the difference between being nearly at the top and being at the top. Yes, yes, well, exactly. And, and it's a challenge many people, many uh, people face at, at different points in their career. How would you, how would you characterise that what seemingly is a small leap, but in reality is quite a big leap. What were those big differences? I, I think the main, uh, the main difference is exactly what I was uh, saying, is as deputy editor, you help to solve a lot of problems. A lot of people come to you because they don't want to go see, uh, to see uh, the editor. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you try to bring solutions to, to the editor and you try to resolve um, uh, issues before they get to the editor. But at the same time, you know that there is somebody, your boss, that you can go to for the final uh, decision. And, um, and, and I think that today, you know, I don't have the editor <laughs> to go to for the final decision. The final decision rests with me. The, the, the great thing, um, that I find, though, is if you have the right team uh, around you, the right deputy editor, managing mm. editor, assistant editors, and I have a terrific uh, team, um, then, you know, you, you, they they can also help you to make to, to reach the decisions. Um, and, um, and and I think I've, I'm very lucky in having uh, such a terrific team around me. I, I mean, I, I think leadership is a team game. Despite that, does it ever feel like a lonely job being the leader? Um, yes, of course, it is. It is lonelier. Um, it is lonelier because, as I said, ultimately the decision does lie with you, and because you know people don't come are more likely not to come to you first, um, which which is healthy for 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 an organization. But I think that the team helps to make it um, less lonely. The fact that you can bounce off um, ideas, the fact that you know, I, 
I'm close to uh, to my team, and you know we talk we talk every day. Um, so it's uh, it, it makes it less lonely. So you've also, I think, said that as your role as an editor, you need to be, of course, reflecting and talking about the things that are interesting and relevant to your readership, of course. But perhaps sometimes focusing on things that maybe they should be uh, interested in uh, or ought to be paying more attention to, but maybe aren't at the moment. For, for example, climate change or gig workers, and, and I'm sure many other things as well. You know, that feels like quite a fine balance to me. It feels maybe like a piece of elastic. You don't want to be too far ahead, but nevertheless, not just simply holding up a mirror. Absolutely. I think that uh, that's what one of uh, one of the issues that is that we're always discussing uh, at the FT. What is relevant to our readers today? But what is also our role is also to highlight what should be relevant to to our readers. Uh, you mentioned climate change. Uh, that was that was uh, that is one issue. Uh, another issue that I would mention is diversity. Uh-huh. I think a couple of years ago, when we used to write about diversity, uh, we didn't have a very good response from uh, from our readers. Um, but we have, you know, we've looked at how we cover diversity, and and you know, in the last in the last couple of years, diversity has become a much more relevant yeah. issue for uh, for for our readers and for all business uh, leaders. Um, So you do have to anticipate. Uh, You have to anticipate. You have to also uh, shape uh, as well. Be able, you have to shape coverage. And and you also have to, um, you have to sometimes think that to invest in something that may not appear relevant today, but you know that it is going to be right. relevant. I mean, we we invested in the climate capital uh, hub, frankly, exactly at the right time right. because uh, because climate became a massive issue for for readers. Um, today, for example, uh, f- uh, our commodities team. Uh, needs um, needs needs a lot more support because we are in a, a again in a commodities uh, cycle, a commodities crisis. Uh, a couple of years ago, we weren't, and th- that's what this is what gets me to something that is extremely important for me and and for the FT, and that is flexibility. You have to be able to move people uh, around, to focus on what is important at at one point in time, but then also to shift emphasis when that is when that is required. So we built up a team on health and um, and um, and science during the pandemic. And if if we hadn't been if if we weren't flexible, yeah. uh, we wouldn't have been able to do this. So you have to not think in silos yeah. all the time. Yeah. You have to be able to. Um, move people around and move people the way that people think also shape the way that that the staff thinks at times in order to change focus and so so you've you've said that the battle against fake news isn't a lost cause um and and in 2021 if the ft made elon musk their person of the year um, you could probably guess how i'm going to link these two together uh so so uh, so, so uh, what do you think of him buying twitter i mean is is the whole fuss around it a kind of a classic sort of chattering classes fuss or does it does it really matter I think it does matter. Of course, it matters. I think we have to wait and see what he, what he does with uh, with Twitter. 
from what we know, he, you know, his his um, uh, what's what's driving him is the whole idea of um, you know that Twitter is not really respecting free speech. Um, but the truth is that Elon Musk isn't going to be able to do whatever he wants with with Twitter. Uh, you know, there's regulation. There are you know governments out there, um, and and I think that um, uh, the EU has already issued a, a statement uh, warning him. I think that there is a, a there's a broader issue here, and that is you know who is the arbiter of uh, of free speech, um, and and I I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable if if Elon Musk was an arbiter of uh, of free speech. No. No, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable if any individual was the arbiter. Surely, by definition, it can't have an arbiter. That's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. That's the challenge. Um, so uh, you've, you've had a glittering career, um, uh, and I'm sure it, there's many, much, much more to come. But a question that uh, we always like to ask um, is about failure. What, what role have failure or failures played in your success? I don't know that failure uh, played a role in in my success. Do I have regrets? Uh, do have I have I done um, things that I would have done differently? I think that's that, you know that's definitely uh, the case. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of one of the um, uh, you know one of the things that I. I wish I had done uh, was uh, to to have tr to have covered uh, other parts of of the world. Uh, in particular, I always wanted to cover Russia and mm. and and China, and I was always sort of told, uh, "Okay, that you know, like the next next time." Yeah. But now the story is is too big. And one of the things that I tell journalists today is, "Don't actually." I know I stayed in one job for a long time, but don't stay in the job for for a long mm. time. Uh, diversify your your experience, um, uh, challenge yourself, and and get to know um, uh, dif different different parts of of the world. And definitely, you know, go abroad. This is one of the great things that the FT that the FT offers. It's for you to be a, a foreign correspondent. So uh, accumulate different experiences and as many as as you can fantastic so i i you're you're a very busy woman i've got two questions to finish with um uh first is a piece of advice you, you've been in the job now for two and a nearly two and a half years what advice would you give to somebody taking on a a, a new big leadership position as you did uh, two years ago one is to listen um, I think there is a great need right now for leaders to to listen. Um, two, I would say to to be willing to change um, the culture uh, of an organization, but while preserving uh, what is most valuable. Um, and three, I would say, you know, focus on collaborative uh, work. Uh, focus on getting people to uh, work together um, and and to understand that working together is what produces the the best work. So teamwork um, and have a great team around you. Yeah, that's always the best advice to to leaders. I agree. I mean, it it it, it is a cliche, but it really really is true. And and 
and quite hard to do. I mean, you know, it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to 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 achieve that. Um, and my final question: um, What next? Next? Yeah. Well, I mean, what what dreams do you still have? What you know? <laughs> that's a great answer. We might just end on that. Next. Next. <laughs> um. Fantastic. Well, Rula, it's been an absolute inspiration talking to you. Thank you so much. We're genuinely honoured. Thanks for having me, Chris. We're genuinely honoured to have had you on. So, um, thank you so much. And uh, you'd better go and catch your plane. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review No Bullshit Leadership on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. Thank you.